Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Real Lives Untold podcast with myself, Sarah O'Connor. And myself, Trina O'Connor. We're focusing on all things crime and human interest, creating a space for people to tell their stories, the raw, unedited version. Today, we are speaking to the inspirational Justin Brooks, the director and co-founder of the Californian Innocent Project, about his latest book, You Might Go to Prison Even Though You Are Innocent. The Californian Innocent Project has succeeded in freeing over 30 wrongfully convicted and imprisoned individuals since it was set up in 1999. Professor at law and criminal defence lawyer Justin Brooks has dedicated his career to this cause and he has trained lawyers in this area. His team work on a number of high-profile cases, including the wrongful conviction of the then 17-year-old footballer Brian Banks for rape a movie based on the Brian Banks story was released in 2018. So, Sarah, today we have... Uh, Very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. All the way... Do you get that all the time, Justin? Are people always no. excited to see you? <laughs> come on, they must be. Not when I come home. <laughs> all the way from sunny California, we have the wonderful Justin Brooks joining us today, who's one of the founders of uh, the Californian Innocence Project. So... Yeah. Um, Justin, maybe we might start by you telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do and, and what keeps you motivated. Sure. So, uh, well, I started my career as a criminal defense attorney in Washington, D.C., doing traditional trial work, representing all kinds of felony crimes. Um, and then after a few years of that, I got lured into academia and started teaching at a law school in Michigan. But that lasted only about six months until I read about a woman who was um, scheduled to be executed in Illinois. And the article said that she'd been sentenced to death on a plea bargain. Wow. And that was fairly shocking to me that someone could be sentenced to death on a plea bargain. I mean, it's a plea, but it's certainly not a bargain. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're supposed to have plea bargains mean you negotiate for a lesser sentence and waive your right to a trial and waive a lot of your appellate rights as well under our system. So I met with her on death row and she told me she was innocent. And uh, so I recruited some law students at the law school I was teaching at. I said, who wants to help me out? And four kids raised their hands from my criminal law class and they came over to my house that night, and we started going through the police reports, and then we went to the crime scene a couple of days later, and we discovered that she was factually innocent, that all the evidence against her had been fabricated, that the only eyewitness to the case clearly had lied because you couldn't possibly see what she said she saw from where she said she saw it, 
I found out later that she was the girlfriend of one of the victims, which was never disclosed. Wow. Um, and so that when I got her death sentence reversed, that inspired me to start the California Innocence Project because California is the state with the largest prison system and uh, the most people on death row. And I started the project um, in 1999, so 24 years ago. And since then, uh, we've been able to free 38 innocent people from prison. Wow. And that Marilyn case went on for nearly 30 years. You were involved in that for, you know, went on for decades. Yeah. So I was able to get her death sentence reversed 25 years ago, but I didn't finally finish her case until this past October. So I started her case when I was 29 years old. I finished it when I was 57 um, and finally got all charges dismissed against her. And that was because for 25 years, I tried to get appellate courts to allow her to withdraw her plea so we could have a trial. And so the only thing I was able to accomplish was to get her death sentence reversed, but I couldn't get a trial to prove her innocence. And finally, uh, the prosecutor agreed this past October that she was innocent and dismissed all charges against her. And in her case, it was it was bad identification, which is very common, isn't it? It was everything that, you know, her her case is what started my career. Her case is what inspired me to write my new book. You might go to prison even though you're innocent. It's the first chapter in the book is, you know, you hired the wrong lawyer. She got a lawyer who just didn't investigate her case. Um, and then she had a police officer, a detective on her case that's now been linked to dozens of wrongful convictions where he was just setting people up, falsifying confessions, falsifying evidence. And uh, it's just a really, you know, I was shocked just at the basic notion that a 21-year-old person could be sentenced to death in the United States of America without a trial. And that's when I started the case. Everything that's happened since has shocked me even more, that she was basically set up by the police, that she got a judge who was a former homicide detective who also didn't care about her case and let her get a death sentence without a trial. And just every stage of the way, the system failed her. And that case finished, she said, last October. So is anyone held accountable then? There's, there's multiple people accountable, obviously, but is anyone held to account because of the wrongs? So this detective, I don't know what they're doing to him. The city has had to pay out millions of dollars in settlements. As far as I know, he's retired and still has his pension. Um, you know, and it's very, very difficult to hold people personally liable in the criminal justice system. It's hard enough to hold the system liable when you have a lawsuit, but individual liability just pretty much never happens. Uh, so that's, that's one of our problems. In fact, you know, as one of the results of the Black Lives Matter movement here in the United States is that Colorado was the first state now to take away police officer immunity. Uh, but the police have prosecutors have total immunity, judges have total immunity, and police officers have near total immunity unless they do something that really shocks the conscience and is really so far outside the scope of their work that that they can be sued. But still, they're not going to be held personally liable. The county will end up paying the cost for that lawsuit. So, so just in your new book, I mean, the title kind of says it all. Uh, you might go to prison even though you're innocent. I mean, some people read that and they hear that title and they go, well, that's a bit traumatic, isn't it? But actually, in your experience, this is something that you've seen time and time again. And in some of the chapters of your book, you have one, you kind of look like other people in the world. And you talk about um, 
two people who became friends, Jennifer and Roland, and they went on then, they, they pushed for reform around eyewitness testimony. Maybe you might speak a little bit about how they became friends and what that case involved. That's it's really interesting. Yeah, so Jennifer Thompson was this young woman, a college student, and one night a guy broke into her apartment and raped her. And at the time of the rape, she was this very bright young woman. She literally said she stared at his face and wanted to remember his face so that she could identify him later on. And because of the way identification procedures are done and all the problems with them, it ended up there was a misidentification that she picked this guy, Ronald Cotton. He went to prison for more than a decade. And then later on, it was discovered through DNA who the actual perpetrator was of the crime. Um, Jennifer carried a burden with that, even though it certainly wasn't her fault that she identified Ronald. Um, it was fault of the procedures and the way that they're done. But Jennifer and Ron Ronald actually became friends. Um, they wrote a book together about bad identifications. They tore around the country speaking on the issue. It's really one of the most remarkable stories in the wrongful conviction world. And I think it's a very important one because it just shows that even when somebody really tries to do their best and they have no malintent, if the procedures aren't done well, there will be misidentifications. And some of the reforms yeah. that we've done here in the United States, and particularly in California, I've been advocating for for decades, are things like we've gotten rid of six-pack photo arrays because we now know that when you show someone six photos in their brain, they just do a comparative analysis and pick the person who most looks like the suspect, but doesn't have to be the suspect. And the entire process is very suggestible. And then it says that it's one of these six people, pick one. And especially when the police say things like, well, we've got someone in custody and we want you to see if you can ID them. Well, if you hear you've got, they've got someone in custody, you know it's got to be one of these people. Yeah. And then one of the real problems we see is when the procedures aren't double blind, meaning neither the police officer nor the witness knows who the fillers are, the people who are just put in there to fill out the faces, the police are terrible poker players. <laughs> and they almost always do subtle things that will indicate who the suspect is. And even when they do a really good job on the procedure, they often, ap after the procedure, like let's say the witness will say, well, it kind of looks like number three. Well, the police officer will say, good job. Okay, great. And now in the witness's head, it is. Yeah, you'd imagine that would fall through on legality. Yeah. It would here, I'd imagine. Yeah, it would here, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't because nobody's recorded that process. So if you think about it later on, by the time you go to trial, I as a defense attorney don't know exactly what happened during that procedure because they they don't videotape the whole procedure. You don't know if they walk the person back to their car in the parking lot and said, really great job today. You did a terrific job. But what happens is what the jury sees is the identification in court. And in court, now the witness says, I'm 100% sure it's that person. Yeah. And the jury doesn't know that they were never 100% sure. Yeah. They just became 100% sure through the process. Yeah. So there's big problems with the way ID processes are done. And around the world, we need to make reforms in this because this is not a problem in the United States. This is a global problem because everyone has problems with memory. Everyone's memories can be distorted. Everyone can be influenced. 
and everyone looks like someone else in the world. And that's why I called the chapter, you look like someone else in the world, because it's that simple that you can get wrongfully convicted. Yeah. And, and the names of the chapters, um, Justin, I, I absolutely love them because they prepared you for what you were going to hear. Like, yeah, another chapter, you get confused when you're tired and hungry and people yell at you and mm-hmm. you talk about people confessing to crimes and you talk about how like would 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 you ever think you might but I suppose your mother's from Liverpool and as far as I understand your wife is British so you would spend a lot of time in England I imagine so you may be aware of some of the high profile Ireland innocent um projects that we would have had here the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four so yep. why do you think people may confess to crimes like in the case of them two high-profile Irish cases. And um, why, why do you think that happens to people confess? Yeah, so just last night I was given a speech at a university and I said, how many of you think you would never confess to a crime you hadn't committed? And a bunch of people raised their hands. And it's very problematic because there's this huge portion of the population who thinks they would never confess to a crime they didn't commit. And the reality is you would because after hours and hours of interrogation, and the procedures that they use for interrogation, people get confused, people get tired, people get hungry, people get angry. With a lot of my clients, it's not that they're broken down, it's they're irritated and angry, and they just say, okay, I did it. Now get me out of here. And they're thinking, I'm not going to get convicted because I didn't do this. And now maybe there's some other circumstantial evidence, maybe a bad identification is done, maybe they get a snitch in the jail to fabricate something you said, And now you're going to prison for the rest of your life. And certainly there's a long experience in Ireland um, and the UK with this, because actually in the UK, they have um, policies and procedures that allow the police to hold people for long periods of time and have ongoing confessions going on and interrogations. And they've traditionally used what's called the read technique. And the read technique is not focused on getting the truth. It's focused on the police create a narrative and then getting you to agree to that narrative. And that's two very different Mm -hmm. things. People think the police are in there trying to figure out the truth and they're not. They go in with their truth and the technique is defined by here are all the ways you get someone to agree with you. And with some people, it's easier than others. You know, there's been cases where someone was blackout drunk and now within a couple hours, the police can convince you of anything because you don't even remember what happened. There's cases like the Amanda Knox case, which I talk about in my book, where still a lot of people in the UK believe she's guilty based on things like the way she looked in court um, and the statements she gave during her interrogation. And if, if you don't fully understand DNA technology, it's easy to think that. In fact, even my mother-in-law who's British thinks she's guilty and I'm good friends with Amanda, which is a little awkward. Wow. Uh, But what happened with Amanda was she's a young kid, a teenager, who's in an interrogation in a foreign language that has just gone through a tremendous trauma of finding her murdered roommate. And it gets deeply confused while the police are telling her things like, we think your boss was involved in this. And eventually she says, "Okay, I I guess he was. I guess that makes sense what you're saying while she's being interrogated in a, a language she doesn't even speak fluently. And yet people put a lot of value in those confessions. A confession is enough to convict you with nothing else. I've seen that over and over again. And it's quite incredible that it does happen. And a movie was made about Amanda Knox and and also, of course, Brian Banks. 
And, the, and in his mm-hmm. case, I think they gave him 10 minutes to decide of whether to plea or not, wasn't it? Yeah, Brian is probably my most famous case. There's a movie made about it. I think it's on Netflix in Ireland. Yeah. You can watch it. Uh, the movie's called Brian Banks. And uh, his case is a very simple case in how he got wrongfully convicted because sometimes it's just as simple as someone tells a lie. And in his case, a 15-year-old classmate, he was a 16-year-old kid, she said that he raped her. And he sat in jail for a year awaiting trial. He was one of the best football players in the United States. Uh, All his dreams of playing football disappeared while he sat in jail waiting. And on the day of his trial, his lawyer says, look, I think you're going to get convicted. You're a big black teenager. It's an all-white jury. They're probably going to believe her and not you. But here's some great news. I think I can get you probation if you plead out on this case. If you don't plead out, you're looking at 44 years to life. You're going to die in prison. And he's a kid. He's a kid. He was 16 when it happened. He just turned 17 when he's sitting in this. He says, can I talk to my parents? They're right outside. The lawyer says, no, you got to make your decision right now. And it's just basically door number one, you might go home today. Door number two, you're going to die in prison. When you're faced with those kinds of decisions, it's no longer about whether you're innocent or not. Yep. It's just about trying to save your life. And it's just about cutting your risk. And so he pled out. He went to prison. And then years down the road, this woman comes forward and admits that it never happened. She actually Facebook friend requested him and said, can we be friends? Can we let bygones be bygones? Sorry, I made up that story about you raping me in high school. And, uh, you know, his whole life had been ruined by that. And it is that simple. And that's the thing. People think once you get out of prison, you know, you can pick up where you left off. But it's so difficult. And I'm sure you've seen that with the people that you've got eventually out of prison. Yeah, all 38 of my clients that I've been lucky enough to walk out of prison uh, have struggled at varying levels. Um, It depends what kind of custody they were kept in. Like I had a client who was wrongfully convicted in a baby death case, and he was a middle-class white guy from San Diego. So he had nobody who was going to protect him in prison. Uh, And so he was locked down in protective custody for 20 years. So when he got out, he was so damaged um, from being in solitary confinement for decades, basically, that he couldn't cross the street without me holding his hand. He had constant panic attacks, and he's he's doing well now. Um, other clients, they had a client, Mike Hanline, who spent 36 years in prison. In fact, your listeners can, can watch a video on YouTube called Man Eats Hamburger After 36 Years, where we have a first meal with him uh, after he got out of prison. And, uh, you know, he struggles with everything. He doesn't understand technology. He's never seen the internet. He's never seen a computer. Uh, They don't have that capacity in prison. He was a mechanic before he went to prison. And the first car he looked at when he got out, he said, I can't work on this car. It's a computer. I don't understand anything about it. Um, So all my clients struggle. Uh, it's, It's tough to adjust back to life outside for anyone who's gone to prison. And for people who go to prison who are innocent, they particularly have a psychological struggle because they can never reconcile why it happened to them. It's, it was all wrong. And that's a very different psychology than you've been committing a lot of crimes and then you get caught and then you're kind of like, okay, I'll do my time and then get on with my life. My clients can't think like that because it was all wrong. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And, and just in your motivation, like when you first started all this, you did that big long walk. Was it 500 miles you walked? It, it actually ended up being 712 miles. <laughs> it did, yeah, because you got really bad advice, didn't you, about a tunnel and you ended up going around <laughs> rather than through. God love you. Um, and that was to petition for 12 um, wrongfully convicted people but and, and you thought everything was going to go really well and then only three as far as I understand anything happened with so my, my question is I suppose how do you stay number one so positive number number two so energetic and motivated like them moments where you see somebody eating a hamburger I imagine they really help and bolster you but they're so far and few um, how, how do you stay motivated is it people around you or what is it that keeps you going? I think it's a combination of everything. Uh, you know, it starts with, I live in San Diego. I could show you the view right now, but I'm looking out on the ocean. So I live at the beach. That helps. I've got yeah. an amazing family yeah. around me. I've got a beautiful grandson. I have an amazing team of lawyers who work with me, who are all my former students who I've trained. Uh, and then having new law students every year really picks me up because they're bright eyed and ready to go. Um, so I think it's important having a good team. But yeah, I've been doing this 32 years, which I think is longer than anybody who's been in the innocence movement. I also have a little stone cottage in Derbyshire in the Midlands. Oh, no. Uh, that's 240-year-old. Yeah, that I go hide in about one month a year to Gorgeous. get my head on straight. It's a little town where there's literally no crime, except every once in a while a trolley gets stolen from Morrison's or something like <laughs> that. It's so quaint. It's gorgeous. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And and in terms of the books that you've written, um, like how how can people get involved? Rather than like people can read your books, obviously, and I would totally recommend that they do. And I'm a huge fan, as I've told you. Um and, and and the way you write is so relatable, like it's really easy to understand because you break very complex issues down into very 
um, understandable language. So how, how can people get involved if they would like to support an Innocence Project or are they all over the world? I know there's several. I know we have one in Ireland and that kind of thing. But what would you say to people if they want to get involved in maybe like the Exonerate Project, for example, which is another project you're involved in? Yeah, thank you. for. I, I actually just launched this morning my new website, youmightgotoprison.com. And on that website, I've got links to uh, the Innocence Network that will link you up with every project in the world. Um, I've got stories and the causes of wrongful conviction, lots of videos, lots of media. It's, it's a place where you can buy my book. Um, I think it's a great resource for that. And that's exactly why I put it together. So it was kind of one place where people could go who are interested in this work. Projects take volunteers. I, I take volunteers on my project here in San Diego. In fact, I've had a number of volunteers from Ireland who've come over and volunteered here during the summer. Uh, so, uh, and obviously all the projects, including mine, need financial support. Yeah, It's not the government that's going in and mopping up these cases it's these projects that are funded by bake sales and things like that yeah. uh, that are doing this work and a lot of volunteer lawyers and volunteer law students, but they still all have expenses like driving to the prisons and meeting with clients and getting, you know, documents and, you know, hiring experts. So, yeah, it's a great thing to get involved in. And, and Justin, how do you pick the cases that you get involved in? Because you have limited resources, obviously. Like, is it like too flippant to say one that you know you're going to win or or is it like do you always like you must get thousands of letters how do you know which ones to believe because i'm sure lots of people say they're innocent and they're not so how do you break that down how do you do that process how do you analyze what is the appropriate one to take yeah that's a great question it's the hardest part of the work as well um so we receive thousands of requests a year uh, california's got more people in prison than anywhere the United States has more people in prison than anywhere in the United States, and we're the biggest state. So we get a box of mail a day. So I have a team of law students. Um, you know, any, any given time, I may have 30 to 40 students. I've got 100 volunteer lawyers, and I've got 10 full-time lawyers. And every day, the, the letters are dug into. The students will send out questionnaires to get as much information about the case. They'll get copies of the transcripts. They'll get copies of the appellate briefs that are filed. And then they'll write an intake memo. In that intake memo, it'll just basically be, is this a possible case? Because there's some cases that are just impossible. I'll give you an example. I've never won a drug case. Wow. Uh, once you're convicted in a drug case, there's only two elements for drug cases. And that is, did you have drugs? And did you know you had drugs? So you two might be driving home today and in one of your, you know, purses, there's some cocaine. I'm not suggesting that, but let's just say <laughs> fictionally. <laughs> and the police pull you over and they find this cocaine and this purse in the car. Well, under U.S. law, at least, and probably under Irish law as well, you both can be charged with possession. And then the question is, did you know it was there? Yeah. Now, you can argue in front of a jury that I didn't know she had cocaine in her purse, but maybe they don't believe you. And now you get convicted of that. There's no way to unring that bell because that's a jury question. It's not something that you can win on appeal. It's not something you're going to win in a habeas petition in the United States. So there's certain cases that get screened out just because they are unwinnable. And again, yeah, they might be innocent. And that's what's heartbreaking about it. Yeah. But we know we can't win that case. If it's a case that we think is winnable, it could become, it'll become a clinic case. 
It'll be further investigated. And then twice a week, we do presentations in my office where I have the awful Caesar-like thumbs up or thumbs down. And we seriously get into the case. With most of them, we just come up with an investigation plan. But often, and I'm going to be doing those this afternoon, um, I'm just shutting a case after I hear everything that we have because either I don't believe it's an innocent person or uh, I just don't think we can win it. And more likely it's about, I don't think we can win it. We have to have compelling evidence of innocence Mm -hmm. to get a conviction reversed. We're we're the last stop before the death penalty or life in prison. And that means you've lost your trial. You lost your initial appeal that the trial was fair. At least somebody adjudicated it as fair. And now if I can't develop strong new evidence of innocence, we're not going to win. And you say that you have thousands of documented cases of wrongful convictions. Isn't that right? And you mentioned there about the biggest prison system uh, being in California. And obviously it's a major system in the States throughout. But do you think part of the problem is that a lot of the prisons, supermax prisons are privately owned? They're a business. They're lucrative. Yeah, I don't think, actually, actually, I'll have to correct myself. We just moved to number two, I'm proud to announce. Texas is now number one. Uh, okay. We legalized marijuana. We did some reforms on our three strikes law, and we made some reforms on felony murder and decreased by thousands our prison population. Do I think it's pri- private prisons that lead to it? You know, it's it's more subtle than that in the way it works. I think it's more subtle than most people think. So my answer to you is yes, but it's not so much just private prisons. It's the entire prison industry, which includes Mm. all the public prisons. What's happened in the States, and I don't know if it's happened in your country, but prison officers unions have become very powerful. So they actually lobby to increase sentences (laughs) because that will increase their employment. We have politicians nonstop running on tough on crime policies because they know voters love that. And we're seeing that all happening again with the upcoming presidential election. They're all falling over themselves to say they're the toughest on crime. So that increases sentences. So, and then those, the people from the prison industry, the people from the police department, the people from the prosecutor side all support those candidates. So candidates can literally get money and support for giving a message that they know will help them get elected. Yeah. So it's this evil, perfect storm yeah. that, of course, we've seen over the last 30 years, g- huge growth in prisons, huge growth in you know sentences, and it's all a result of that. In fact, probably the most important case in the last 100 years in the United States is the case of Willie Horton, who was a guy who was released on parole in Massachusetts when Mike Dukakis was running for president against the first George Bush. And and Mike Dukakis was beating George Bush by a lot. And then George Bush's team came up with the great idea. Let's find a person out on parole who did a violent crime. And then we can blame Mike Dukakis for it because he's governor of the state that released him. And technically the governor's in charge of parole, even though of course the governor never knows who's paroled in a state because they do other things with their days. And it worked. And every politician in the country saw that, that Mike Dukakis lost the presidential election on a message that he was soft on crime. And that is something that has changed everything in the United States. And I wouldn't be surprised if similar things happen in Ireland. So a huge amount of politics involved. And you've you've spent a lot of time in a lot of your time in the UK. So you know about the fact that the prosecutors here and in the UK are completely independent 
Is that something that you think could help in the States? Yeah, we have, I mean, our judges are elected in a lot of jurisdictions. We have both system, both an appointed system and elected system. Yeah. And I've always thought this is crazy. Yeah. I mean, to put political pressure on judges to make decisions because they're going to be published in newspapers and then voters are going to see how they went on it. And then prosecutors are elected. And so I talk a lot about the politics of that in my book, um, particularly in light of what's become known as white woman syndrome in the United States, which is when white women go missing, it becomes big news stories. And then when they show up dead, it becomes a bigger news story. And then the prosecutors always step into the limelight of that news story and they seek the most serious punishment. And that's why we see now a huge racial disparity in the death penalty, because basically you only get the death penalty if you kill white people in the United States, and particularly white women or white children. I mean, mm. and, it, and it's, it's when you look at how the media covers those cases, it is dramatically different. Yeah, um, I lived in D.C. for a number of years practicing law. The Washington Post is known as one of the most progressive newspapers in the U.S., Every single day, a young black man was killed in D.C. when I lived there. And it was in the metro section in the back of the paper. Whenever a white person was killed, it was right in the front of the paper. And that makes a difference in how the, the general population responds to those crimes. Yeah. And it introduces real racism into the system that maybe wouldn't have existed at that level. Yeah, their perception of crime, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and we see something similar here, just yeah. kind of, it's more classed than anything else, um, where people from different backgrounds, their murders get covered differently. And if somebody dies through domestic violence, it may get covered differently to somebody dying from a, a stranger murder, for example. Um, it, Depending it, on their nationality. Yeah, their nationality mm-hmm. as well, because Ireland is becoming a much more cosmopolitan and multicultural country only in about the last 20 years previous to that we were very insular and um, i suppose just to touch on one thing you mentioned there justin you were talking about the death penalty and we don't have the death penalty here and many countries don't and um, do you mind talking to us maybe about your thoughts on the death penalty you don't have to say whether you agree or disagree i won't push it but i'd be just interested in your thoughts on the death penalty what, what are your feelings around it Oh, I'm happy to say that I'm 100% against it. Uh, You know, people always say, well, if you knew someone who'd been a victim of a violent crime or it happened to a family member, you know, I have known people who are victims of violent crimes, and I've also sat on death row with innocent people. So I always say the same. Well, if you'd known an innocent person on death row, it might change your views. In fact, I wish politicians would just be honest about it. When a reporter says, how would you feel if your wife or husband got murdered? Would you want the death penalty? They should go ahead and say, yes, I absolutely would, because I'd be incredibly biased and emotional. <laughs> but that doesn't mean a government should take the same stance as a person who's emotionally attached to a case. Uh, we now, my client, Marilyn Malero, was the 190th innocent person we've walked off death row in the United States. Now, To me, then, it changes the paradigm. Instead of us thinking, do these people deserve to die who commit murders? Well, we really need to ask the question of, do we deserve to kill as a system when our system is so deeply flawed that we are regularly sending innocent people to death row? So there's no such thing as a perfect criminal justice system. It doesn't exist in the world because it's just human beings making decisions and we're always fallible. 
And therefore, regardless of our philosophical views on the death penalty, they're not relevant. At a practical level, it's too faulty. We shouldn't have it. And to me, that just sets aside all the arguments about morality and religion and philosophy because they don't have a place in the criminal justice system. That's stuff people can kick around classrooms. But when you're in the trenches doing this work and seeing how easy it happens that people end up on death row who are innocent, there's no way to support it. There's no way to morally support it. So that's my position. It's fairly strong. Thank (laughs) you, Justin. Appreciate that. And so 30 years on, I suppose, he started out, I think he said, um, looking at becoming a corporate lawyer. Are you glad you didn't take that route? I am. I, uh, I went to business school, university. I studied business and finance. And I then went on to graduate school and law school to be a corporate lawyer. And I went to a prison in law school. My professor brought me to a prison and it just changed my whole life. I ended up working in the prison, teaching a class in a prison. Um, and I just saw that if I was going to have the kind of power that comes with being a lawyer, that's the way I wanted to use it, is to help the most vulnerable people uh, in our population. And so it, it really turned around the way I was thinking about it. I grew up in a fairly poor family, and it just seemed from watching TV, the lawyers were doing really well. And I think that's what led me down a path of I'm going to be a corporate lawyer. Uh, so it's certainly yeah. not as lucrative as it would have been. But I, looking back now on my career and all the people I've walked out of prison and students I've taught, I'm, I'm very satisfied with my decision. And are you sleeping any better at night? No. You take it home, <laughs> I would imagine. According to my Fitbit, I slept five hours last night and only 15 minutes of it was extremely restful. Oh, so. <laughs> Do you ever make it to Ireland at all? We might get to bump into you. Have you, have you, have you do you make it to Ireland at all? Have you been? I do occasionally. And I, I would love to come over to Ireland at some point. I'll, I'll be in the UK this summer. I'm teaching a course on wrongful convictions in London ah. at an a, a organization called Kappa yeah. that brings over undergrads, mostly from the US, to take courses in London. And then I'll be hiding out in my cottage in Derbyshire <laughs> as well. But hopefully I can get over we might track you down. And listen, from the Emerald Isle, we want to say to you, thanks ever so much for coming on to the podcast. Appreciate so your much, time. Jason. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And I'd love your listeners to check out my book and go to youmightgotoprison.com and see what's going on. And do you work a little bit? Sorry, just one last question. Do you work with Kim Kardashian on her? She has the Justice Project. Do you work with her and does that help? I have yet to meet or work with Kim Kardashian, but if she hears this, Give me a call. I'd be happy to talk to her. <laughs> you can contact us on social media at Real Lives Untold. Our email address is reallivesuntold at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe to hear this season's episodes every Wednesday. You can listen on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.